Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm thrilled to have Cheryl Wills with us. She is a veteran news anchor at New York One here in New York, and she's also an incredibly accomplished author. Cheryl, welcome to The Caring Economy. Oh, Toby, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. You know, I followed you for so many years as a New Yorker, and uh, you were there from the start with New York One 25 or more years ago. Um, I love hyper local news, and that's what you guys do so well. But I've also been intrigued to follow you, Percy, and your, your books and your authorship. You have been doing some really cool stuff around genealogy, which is more and more of interest to all of us. So rather than start with the career stuff, I thought we might talk about the books because actually what I see in you is what I think I, I believe myself to be, which is a purpose-driven person whose work and hobbies are all one sort of manifestation of a sort of purpose-driven life. So tell us a little bit about Cheryl Wills, the author first. Yeah, absolutely, Toby. And thank you for that question. You know, when I was able to reconnect my lost family roots, it gave me more purpose. So that's right in line with what your wonderful podcast is about. I have been on New York One for nearly 30 years, started in 1992. And it was only about 10 years ago, Toby, that I discovered that I was much more than a news anchor. <laughs> I was much more than a journalist. I was actually the great, great, great granddaughter of an enslaved man from Tennessee who fought in the Civil War, America's defining war, and he fought in Lincoln's army and freed himself as a member of the United States Colored Troops from 1863 to 1865. Toby, if that doesn't give you purpose, nothing will. And goosebumps too, yeah. Yeah, because it, it redefined who I was why I was sitting on the anchor set every day, why it was important to be a journalist, and why now I had a much broader mission to then much broader than reporting the daily events of what's happening in New York City. Now I was tying it into something far more sacred and seeing the connection to America's original sin, which is slavery. And, you know, you start to understand, wow, this is not new, what I'm reporting on every single day. And it broadened my horizons. It gave me new purpose in every dimension. And it truly just changed my life. I, 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 am, I do get goosebumps as you talk about this because it is the original sin and we do have to talk about these things, yeah. right? Otherwise we'll never learn, we'll never really move past that past. So um, I, let's talk a little bit about your, your great, great, great grandfather was Sandy Wills, right? Correct. And you also did a book later about your grand, great, 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 great grandmother, Emma, which we'll come back to. But um, so how did you find out about this, this legacy? You know, what sparked my genealogical interest was the passing of my father when I was 13. When you lose a parent at that tender age, when you're going through puberty, it leaves a hole in your heart. And my father, you know, is a good guy, smart guy, a self-made man, but he lost his way. And 
you know, he never stopped working. He never stopped going to college, but he didn't connect with his wife and children the way he should have. He had five children mm -hmm. and he was killed on his motorcycle in Brooklyn, New York here. And I couldn't believe that this had happened to me while I was in middle school. And it always made me wonder when I looked at his funeral program, Toby, who was this guy from Haywood County, Tennessee that strutted around Manhattan as a hotshot fireman? And why didn't he live up to his truest potential as a father? And that stayed with me when I became a mother. <laughs> I'm a mother of a 23-year-old college. He just graduated with his master's degree. And it bugged me. And when all of the documents from the census records dating back hundreds of years were digitally uploaded, that gave me the opportunity to become a detective, if you will. And I started going back in the census records. And fortunately, my father was from a little dusty town in Haywood County, Tennessee. You know, he pretended he was a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker, but he wasn't. He was a little country boy. Very few and... people are, actually. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, Toby. <laughs> and when he, when I looked and started going back, the census, you know, there's a big to who to do right now about the 2020 census that's big news right now but when i went back to the 19 say 50 census and i saw him and then i saw the 1920 census and i saw his parents and i kept going back that's how i discovered sandy wills and i hired a professional genealogist i said wait a minute am i a descendant of a civil war soldier you know uh, uh, slavery and Jim Crow destroyed the fabric of so many families mm -hmm. that our heroic stories were lost. Yes. You know, when you're living in a state of terror, you're not sharing tender memories of grandpa fighting in the Civil War. That gets lost in the day-to-day -day protection of just your life. So that story was lost to my family. But when I found it, Toby, I ran with it. Good for you, and I understand from some of your um, your uh, your backgrounds information that you are actually sort of campaigning to get both your great 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 grandfather recognized with military funeral, absolutely, um, but also to raise awareness about these soldiers because it's not necessarily what one would think of a black person at that time. They would think slave, right? And all the the negative things attributed with that. And there's so much more of a story to be told and one of pride and contribution to this country. That's exactly right. And there were about 200,000 enslaved and free black men who fought in the Civil War under the auspices of the United States Colored Troops, a great many of them, including my grandpa, Sandy Wills. And I love to remind people that I'm Cheryl Wills. Yeah. Remarkably, the same last name over same 200 name. years. Yeah. yeah. Name given by a slaveholder, no doubt, but the fact that it's an unbroken name all the way to me after all these generations is nothing short of miraculous. And it makes it all the more poignant. Yes. But so many of those black soldiers were buried without honor, Toby. And that's part of my purpose-driven life now. To your point, you explained it beautifully. I am on a very sacred mission 
to find Sandy Wills's remains and that of his wife and give him the proper military burial with honors that he did not receive in 1889, Toby. He is buried. I pinpointed it miraculously. I was able to pinpoint where he is on the very plantation where he died in 1889. His family, the same family Toby still owns it. Can you believe this? Yeah, I want to hear about how you went down there to visit and what that was like, because I think that's where we have to go for reconciliation if we're yes. ever forward. So tell us a little bit about that. You've, you've done your research, a great journalist that you are. You go down to Tennessee to the plantation where Grandpa Sandy at Wills was. Um, and I believe it was not so comfortable at first for the owners, but they came around. They did. And I give them a little leeway because it is an incredible call. Hey, the, the, the great, great, great granddaughter of some slaves on your family's property is, she's trying to reach you. I mean, that makes you nervous. I guess if I were in their shoes, I would be understandably nervous. No one likes to talk about slavery in this country. It's painful, it's embarrassing, and the family members who have inherited this awful legacy, you know, you almost can't blame them for wanting to run from it because it was so horrific and just vile and inhumane. It was a crime against humanity that was sanctioned by the United States government for generations. So when you have a grandfather, in their case, John Bertie Moore, who was involved in human trafficking and the enslavement of people and owning human flesh, you know, you kind of want to say, okay, that's over. Let's kind of pretend <laughs> that let's kind of pretend this plantation uh -huh. is just not what it really is. And, and there has been a whitewashing of what happened. So when I reached out to them, they were understandably like, oh my God, oh my God. And they really didn't want to talk here. to me. Yeah. yeah, they didn't want to talk to me. And I get it, Toby, I get it, but I wasn't going to be denied. And we worked gently. I understood their sensitivity, but they needed to understand my sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were both on polar opposite sides, Toby, forced to deal with America's unfinished business. Do you understand? This country, after slavery ended in 1865, basically told everyone as you were. Well, that's not reconciliation. That's not healing. As you were is not going to change. And you left an open wound. And now the families that were traumatized, my family, and the families that benefited and were shamed by now reveal, you know, the revelation that, oh, this what you mean owning humans was wrong? <laughs> you told us it was fine. <laughs> so here we are, generations later, Toby, having to look at each other and deal with the unfinished business from 1865. Yeah. And it wasn't easy for either side. But so, mm -hmm. But the, the, what I like about what you're doing, Cheryl, is it is, um, it's positive. It's it is all healthy. positive. 
it's 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 considerate and it's closure it's i'm seeking closure toby i'm seeking closure and i you know i told the family i'm not i don't i'm not asking for any money i'm not asking for reparations i'm not i do ask for my family's remains yes you may own this land fine my family worked there and didn't get paid for generations fine that's a issue i will deal with with the united states government Mm -hmm. okay i'm not gonna go i don't think individual families should be held responsible for what their ancestors did it's as if someone came to me and said oh your ancestors from 300 years ago killed our and now you're gonna no that wouldn't be right and it's not right to hold an individual family today accountable however here we are my thought my family is buried on your land and yes it's your land but you do not own their remains that still belongs to me yeah so are they allowing you to come in with you know we're in talks toby we're in talks the pandemic stopped everything in its tracks and they were open they were listening but they are understandably nervous. They have a lot of questions and I'm happy to answer the questions. I have a professional archeology span team that I will pay out of my pocket. I'm not even asking them to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it with the proceeds from 10 years of selling books about my family's trials and tribulations through slavery. So we, they, they're listening and you know, that's all I can ask. Please listen. Well, and, hopefully with this interview, we can yeah. get some more visibility yeah. and support yeah. for you. Exactly. I'm, I'm reminded of, I have one, I think, good example of a white person and one of a black person doing some really great work in this space that might be helpful. Oh. Um, as fate would have it, when I was in college in Virginia, one of my, when I was a resident advisor, Robert E. Lee V was one of my students. <gasps> You're kidding. And you may have seen about two months ago, he and his sister both did some press at Arlington because of the ancestral home there. And they I've seen Rob on multiple occasions go out and go into that conversation and has been very much a leader, I believe, in saying, look, these statues cause anger, frustration. Uh, This this estate can cause that as well. We need to shake hands, work together to find ways to address this from both sides. Right. Um, and the other is I love the artist Kahinde Wiley, and you probably saw his um, Rumors of War sculpture when it was Absolutely. in Times Square, which now is in front of the museum in Richmond. We need leadership like that that takes these presumed to be white uh, dominant culture mm-hmm. figures and put them in heroic horses and figures and to juxtapose a black slave onto that that horseback was profound and it was educational it was inspiring it was inviting people to have the dialogue we've got to have the dialogue i think so i salute you with your books and with your work at new york one cheryl on starting that or continuing that dialogue yeah a dialogue is everything and um you hit the nail on the head you know after 1865 they attempted there was a noble attempt at reconstruction but it was quickly stopped by racists in the south and then they doubled down and created jim crow and traumatized an entire race of people for another 100 years and uh we we are dealing now with you know slavery and the non-closure of that trauma and Jim Crow. Yeah. 
-hmm. and the non-closure there. I mean, so uh, here we are, right? Yeah, you know, the uh, again, I think most Americans want to live and let live. And if presented with the facts, we'll err on the side of the more compassionate and yeah. responsible move. Black Wall Street's another example. Yeah. It's only been in the past two, at most three years, where the average American is seeing that this happened yes. and it was never taught, never something never. That was on the radar. And then, you know, I had worked a bit with Mike Bloomberg's campaign and he did a lot to raise awareness around Tulsa. The, when you start to help people understand that if your great, great, great grandparents couldn't own property, couldn't build something, couldn't pass something along, then wealth creation is not an option. That's right. Ownership is not an option. That's so. Right. To think about a, a class of people who have been denied that for generations uh -huh. and the knock-on effect, it's not a quick fix. No, but it's certainly not. Certainly, we need to go there. We need to talk about it and figure out ways forward together. And it's an uncomfortable conversation, you know. And when I looked at this family, uh, the descendants of the original slave owner, uh, I saw that they were the great beneficiaries, you know, they, oh, they, they, they are all, they all inherited generational wealth mm -hmm. and me, I inherited nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what slavery's goal was. We're doing this. So our children, our grandchildren and the generations to come will all be fine. And you black people won't have anything. And I'll tell you, Toby, Every generation from Sandy Wills started with zero. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me a All little bit about yeah. tell me a little bit about the female angle there. So you start out with your great 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 grandfather, but then yeah. you wrote a book later about his wife. Emma. About his wife, his so, incredible wife Emma. Quickly, uh, yeah. he married after the Civil War, and he married a former slave. She was the one that was raised on John Bertie Moore's plantation. And uh, she turned out to be an incredibly astute and sophisticated woman for someone who was born a slave. Her family was sort of like the, oh, how do you describe, I always struggle to describe, they were the house slaves. Yep. That is, they were closest to the white owners. Mm -hmm. So they were never sold. They never went through the, That's you know, good. the they were traumatized, but in a different way. They were pro as protected as any enslaved person could be. Yeah. So they were in the kitchen. They probably got better food. They, they were not in the fields, you know, like the other enslaved people who were living in mm -hmm. unspeakable conditions. So Emma was a slave, dare I say, of privilege, if that's even a proper way to put it. And she married Sandy. She got married, as she put it in the pension record, right in the white folks' house. Former <laughs> slaves didn't do that. And uh, she had, they raised a family. They had nine children. And when her husband died, here's why she's the hero for me and for the millions of children who have read her account as a result of my book, Emma. She was denied a widow's pension because she was black. Wow. And when I went into the files, Toby, I was blown away because I saw how she hired a lawyer. I don't know where she got the money. It's, you know, we have some sophisticated guesses, but they're guesses nonetheless. She hired a lawyer and went after the government and said, you are going to respect me. 
and my husband's service to this country. And there were pages and pages of her verbal deposition, which oh. is like she's talking to me. They did were very- Did she win? She won. Amen. But the most beautiful, amen is right, Toby. The most beautiful part is that when she spoke, they, you know, she was not allowed to read or write, so she couldn't write anything down, but she spoke from her heart. No one had seen it since she done she had done it and when i opened it and read it it was like she was talking to me mm. her yes. great 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 granddaughter that she would never lay eyes on and i mean she is my shero of all times <laughs> after my natural mother who is thankfully still alive and uh she she changed again she changed the trajectory of my life, speaking to me from the grave, saying, Cheryl, I never believed anything they said. I knew I was a full-blooded American entitled to all the rights and privileges of this country, and no one was going to take that from me. Brava, Emma. So, so Cheryl, if anyone wants to pick up any of your books, what's the best way to find them? Amazon? I think the best way is Amazon. Yeah, if you put my name in, they'll all come up. I have my, uh, my website, CherylWills.com you can find more about my story there and what's your, what's your twitter handle uh, at cheryl wills ny1 for new york one and it's just such an honor i i love your podcast purpose driven because that gives this story i just this journey i just took you on is yep. part of what drives me it's a purpose driven life now I'm not just reading news headlines anymore. When you see me, you see Sandy and Emma Wills too. Indeed. Well, stay with us. I want to uh, ask a little bit more about your, your news side. Um, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we're thrilled to have Cheryl Wills with us. She's that New York One anchor who's been with them from the launch of the station uh, 25 years ago, I guess it was, Cheryl. Almost 30. 30 almost 30. Almost and author of multiple books, including Emma and uh, one on her great, 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 great grandfather, Sandy Wills, a slave and Civil War hero. Um, Cheryl, talk about journalism today. And you can do it through actually the lens of, of race, if you like. I mean, you, I do like that New York one is hyper-local. I think that that's where we can get real good journalism now because so much is commercially driven or watered down at the An national level. Deeply yeah, opinionated. Deeply opinionated. And so I always look to New York One to get my real pulse and uh, weather and everything else. Um, ha has it changed in all those years? How has it been the same and wonderful for you? And what's what's grown or changed? In the yeah, it's been a privilege and an honor to spend uh, the bulk of my career at New York One. Spectrum News has taken us to the next level. I'm deeply grateful for that. It's not an easy time for cable in general. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, people are cutting the cord in record numbers. So uh, we don't know what the future holds, but we're going to continue to hold the line and continue to produce great local journalism. It's an honor also to be an African-American woman in the anchor chair. When I was a kid, they were few and far between. It was only black men at first that were allowed. And then women took another 10 years after that to, to find their place in the business. So I'm deeply humbled by all of those who opened the doors. And I'll tell you the climate today is a mixed bag. So I, I, some of my colleagues on national cable, you know, it's this opinionated sideshow, mm -hmm. if you will, and on both ends of the political spectrum. 
I don't appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I went to one of the best um, journalism schools in the country. And they absolutely knew how school and uh, no one taught us or even predicted that we would be (laughs) where we are now, where you could spout off your opinion, insult your viewers, or worse, train your viewers how to think. Mm. That is not the role of a journalist. And you see now journalists doing that every single day. I'll tell you how you should think. I'll make up your mind for you. And I'll be in as, as inflammatory and as biased as I want because I know you're going to believe me. Well, this is how we got to January 6th. Mm-hmm. And journalists have a tremendous responsibility. And I think so many have drop the ball and have become selfish and it's a money make i'm not talking about local now i'm talking about these national shows that go too far left or right Mm -hmm. and uh it's been a tremendous disservice and i think it's what in terms of far right certainly it inspired january 6th and we saw in real time just how dangerous it can be Mm -hmm. when we don't follow the tenets of journalism and we go off into this la la land getting paid millions for it, right? (laughs) That's a big part of it. You know, this is selling and this is profitable. And I'm very sad as a journalist of more than 30 years to see where we are, especially with some national cable networks. But as for me, I don't do that. (laughs) I don't give, you know, I might have a little fun at times, you know, doing a feature segment, but I do not believe I would ever tell people how to think, even though I have very strong feelings about what happened to my family as an African-American journalist, but I would just present it and let the viewer be the judge. I think that's the holy grail of journalism. I I want to repeat what you said, because I've never heard it distilled this way, and I think it does hit the nail on the head. It's not the journalist's role to teach a viewer or reader what to think or how to think, right? It's to present the, the facts, the news, and you're right. It's so polarized right now on both sides. And it is very tra- and it's tragic. And we're paying a dear price. The fact that um, this pandemic was politicized is the reason why the United States has the highest death toll on planet Earth. The mm-hmm. United States has the highest death toll from a pandemic. Mm-hmm. That is in my view because it was politicized and people took sides and now there are six hundred thousand plus dead americans because they were drinking a lot of kool-aid and that pandemic just ravaged so many a lot of people have blood on their hands with this and it's spiking again sadly and unnecessarily And Um, and the same ridiculous arguments are still being played out Yes. People screaming over masks. They're acting like they're gas masks and you're going to inhale it and drop dead. I mean, I I couldn't. It's also me, 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 me. Oh, yeah. My life. And it's not about the community in a way that sounds to me, it feels to me incredibly un American. 
It's absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about, don't you tell me what to do. I'm sorry, you've been told what to do since you were born. You were given vaccines since you were born. And if you get in your car, if you don't wear a seatbelt, you will get a ticket. We're told to do what to do. You're told what to do every second of the day. Don't act like this pandemic is the first time someone's (laughs) telling you what to do. But Cheryl, tell us, because you, you've got this unique platform of, of being a media a veteran. How do you, how do we guide individuals, listeners, viewers to, to choose or consume their media in this yeah. very polarized, yeah. vast, overwhelming bombardment of media on a daily basis? You know, it's very difficult because you can dial in to some narrow-minded platform Mm-hmm. and put your blinders on and stay in that dark place and no other light gets in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how cults are born. I mean, <laughs> that's how they groom you to be in a cult. Listen to me. Don't listen to anyone else. They're all wrong. Only we know the truth. Yeah. I mean, the the best and I mean, again, I'm not talking about left or right. I'm just talking common sense right now. The best way to consume all of the information that's now coming at us at the speed of light is to just keep your ears and eyes open, listen to other points of view, mm-hmm. make your judgments when you're fully informed. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you. If you listen to all the information and you make a decision that you don't want the vaccine and you'd rather assume the risk, that is perfectly within your right to do so. But to let some hysterical journalist who has an ulterior motive walk you down this <laughs> into this cave and tell you because of this person and this person, you must... Well, that's something altogether different. Yeah, that's not an informed citizen. That's not an informed citizen. You're being coerced, my friends. So if you come to this realization after assessing all the information available to you, that's what being an American is. There are people who don't actually get their children vaccinated because that's their choice for whatever religious reason, and that's fine. I get it. If you want to take that risk and you want your child to get the measles or chicken pox, even though it's been eradicated and most of the, then that's fine. But if you're following this dogmatic, hysterical, you know, I think that's a tremendous Strange, yeah. service. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, grateful for your time. I've got a couple more quick questions for you, Cheryl, just uh, in, in no particular order. Um, leadership, right? Like that's kind of critical for how we all move forward. Yeah. I think you're a great leader and you help your viewers uh, find their way forward through these complex times and issues, whether it's COVID, race, you name it. You've interviewed so many great leaders, Ban Ki-moon at the UN, Al Sharpton, just countless ones. Any observations or, or takeaways sort of at the high level about leadership? Yeah, sure. You're in the presence of a leader. Yeah, you know, I was in the presence. You, you brought up Al Sharpton, and I've known Al Sharpton for the bulk of my career, more than 30 years. And it is he is one of the most fascinating Americans that I've had the pleasure of knowing because he is someone that a lot of people tried to destroy. Mm -hmm. And he stood up 
for people who were marginalized. And he spoke out against police brutality when it was not popular to do so. And he was vilified and demonized. And now you cannot be elected <laughs> to any political office nationally or locally unless you talk to Al Sharpton if you're a Democrat. And the fact that he has been graceful throughout it all, throughout all of the attacks and being stabbed. You know, Al Sharpton was almost killed and his family being demonized and their privacy being invaded. And the fact that he is still able to continue to do the work and now he's respected on the global level is just one of the most incredible things I've ever seen yeah. in my life. It shows his strength, his tenacity, and true leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of Ban Ki-moon, which I had the pleasure of honor, uh, interviewing him, he also presented me with the prestigious UN Correspondence Medal for uh, excellence in journalism. He is an, an international leader, of course, and I was impressed with his leadership in terms of, you know, the UN is not, not everyone is thrilled about the UN, you know, New Yorkers essentially ignore that it's there, except when the General Assembly gets, right, when those parking tickets get, and it's just a parking story. Yes. And, you know, I, I talked to him about that. And I talked to him about how come New Yorkers don't appreciate what's happening in this building and people come from all over the world to go to the UN and New Yorkers walk by it every day thinking, you know, it's just another building. And he explained to me that, you know, New Yorkers need to understand the importance of global diplomacy. And he talked about how so many of us are isolated and in our own worlds and how we are all still connected. And he was absolutely right. The great leader from South Korea. So uh, my favorite um, interview very quickly was with um, the first woman president, um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia. I didn't get to meet um, Nelson Mandela, the great Nelson Mandela. And that was something I had always wished I could do, but time ran out. Unfortunately, he mm -hmm. passed away, but I did meet the first woman president and she is incredible. And I've interviewed her several times. And, uh, and you know, what's incredible about her is that she assumed leadership in a country on a continent that traditionally devalues women. Women, yeah. And the fact that she was ascend to the heights of power and become an international symbol and a Nobel Peace Prize winner just blew my mind. Truly. So she is uh, she's one of my all time favorites as well. Now, sticking with the girl power um, and your uh, alma mater, Syracuse, uh, yeah. Hopel is also an alumna at Syracuse. Have you interviewed our soon to be new governor, I the certainly first have. female governor of New York? many, many times. And I have my request in now, like, hello. <laughs> when when no me. one was talking about Kathy Hochul, you were on my talk show. So please uh, return the favor now. And so she is a wonderful leader. She's big on women's rights yeah. and very big. And we've done many events together. I've interviewed her numerous times, more than I could count. And now she is ascending in 11 days from this recording to the governor's mansion. And I think it's pretty incredible under the, you know, the scandal, you know, 11 women an investigation yeah. found 
or sexually harassed. And here comes this dynamo of a woman who is all about women's rights. So as she said in an interview yesterday, she's going to clean house. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see her clean house. And sadly, I don't, Albany's been uh, deeply corrupt. Our last full-time governor, well, you, we had a David Patterson before yep. Cuomo, but he took over from the other disgraced governor. <laughs> and it's just like, whoa, you know, what is going on in Albany? So well, also hopefully... it's happened in Connecticut and New Jersey. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And it does yeah. seem to skew more toward the male leaders. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully, you know, she's taking the mantle as of the first woman governor. And I think that is a long overdue. Yep. And I, I, I think so many... Many of us are excited to see how she handled so much on her shoulders. Yes. Oh, my goodness. She's got our support. So one last question, um, ending on a high note. I love music. You love music. Yeah. You've got a new book you're working on, on yes. gospel singers. Yes. Tell us about it. Oh, sure. It's called Isn't Her Grace Amazing? 25 Women Who Changed gospel and you know i was raised by my grandparents well you know i had my parents of course but i went to church every sunday with my grandparents and my grandmother was a great singer my grandfather was the preacher and i gospel music was my you know baby formula. I just know everything about it. I heard it all my life. So this was a tremendous honor to be able to tell the stories of great singers like Mahalia Jackson and so many others, even all the way to current singers, all the legends, because they are the unsung heroes of gospel music. Gospel music was a man's game. Okay, it was the blind boys and all the male groups were dominant, the Dixie Hummingbirds, and the women were just seen like, oh, isn't that cute? A woman's going to come sing a song. <laughs> and so these women had to break through this male barrier and make their voices heard. So I am so excited for the release of this book next summer. Maybe I could come back on your show and talk about that. some of the great women I would who love that. Uh, made gospel you roar. Well, Cheryl Wills, New York One veteran anchor, author, and just a great New Yorker. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Caring Economy. You get the last word. Yeah, so my last word to all of your wonderful viewers is thank you for just being part of this podcast. Toby, you are such a tremendous asset to just the media community. And I know you're a Brit, right? <laughs> Well, I work for the British consulate, but I'm a Yank. Yeah. Oh, you're a Yank? I thought you were British. I, you born British. I work for the British consulate, but I'm an American. <laughs> you know, and when you started to talk, I said, I don't hear a trace of a British. <laughs> but you, you represent Brits so well. Uh, I'm sure you're an honorary. You need to be knighted. But um, as a fellow Yankee, uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to just share these moments with you. And it's such an honor to even be able to share my journey because this was once a forbidden topic, talking about slavery. So the fact that you opened up your platform to me and allowed me to share means everything. I thank you sincerely. It's my joy and do come back and I thank you.